Good afternoon. I met with, this doesn't seem like it's quite loud enough. How is the volume? If I keep on talking and it gets a little bit louder, is that better? Is that, is that okay? There we go. I'm trying to get this microphone to, how, how is this? Sounds like, is, is, it, is it okay? I was going to say that um, I met with, I guess, a quarter of you today. It's always nice to meet and connect with you all. I look forward to meeting with the rest of you, too. So on the opening evening, we took the refuges. It's part of the tradition when we open retreats. Sometimes people have that as a regular part of their practice, is to take refuge. And I've done that sometimes, you know, just to chant the refuges. And there's, I don't know, it's something that, uh, for me, just feels kind of like nourishing, supportive in some kind of way. But we might ask, what does it really mean, this idea of taking refuge? And there's a a few different ways we might think about this. One is, you know, even in like everyday parlance, we have this idea, you know, there's wildlife refuges. Like there's this place that's with, you know, protection, things that we value and that are important are protected and are in a refuge. Maybe they might be threatened in some other way. Or maybe it's a place like where we can rest and feel supported. Right? It's a, a, a place to, like a refuge. It's like, oh, okay, here, you know, to, and we feel like we can settle in. Or maybe another image of refuge is, uh, I heard a Dharma teacher say this, and I really liked it, this idea of a really big, old, like maybe even ancient tree, with these really big branches and leaves on it, and we're out in the wilderness, and the rain comes, and we can find shelter under this big, ancient tree. And knowing like so many beings through the time have also taken shelter in that tree, maybe up in the branches or even underground or maybe even sitting under the leaves as we are. And one thing that I like about this definition or this uh, image of refuge is that, you know, when you're under the tree in a rainstorm, you're not completely protected from the rain. You're not cut off. You're not isolated. You're not completely separated from but it's a place that's safer, that you feel like, okay, I'm just going to stay here for now. I still know there's rain, and maybe I still feel the breeze and these types of things, but taking refuge under this ancient, beautiful tree. Another way we might think about going for refuge as an orientation, like a direction that we're going to. We're going to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha as a 
contrast to just feeling lost and aimless and not sure what to do or where to go or which is best or, you know, this feeling of there is nowhere to go, maybe even, or this hopelessness, maybe even. This refuge is this orientation. Maybe I'm not entirely sure what the Buddha Dharma Sangha means for me, but there's something in me that recognizes this is a direction I want to go with my life, with my actions, with my speech, with my practice, with my mind. And there's a way in which we you know, keep on coming back to that orientation, of course, can be transformative. Because having that orientation in some ways can be like a rudder on a boat. And it might seem minor, it might seem trivial, like, okay, I'm just going to reorient this direction in a way that feels like there's less suffering more well-being, more peace, ease, freedom. But maybe in the same way that if you were to head, we're not too far from the Pacific Ocean here, if you were to get in a boat in the Pacific Ocean, and just a little difference in the rudder depends on whether you're going to Japan or you're going to Hawaii. They're both beautiful places, but they're different. And so just this, you know, this small reorientation can actually have a really big difference, a big impact on our lives. So this way, this kind of like repeated reorientation, this repeated taking refuge can be transformative. And something that's really nice about this or supportive about this is that this reorientation is 100% portable. It's not something that we just do on retreat or during meditation. We can do this in all aspects of our lives, all situations of our lives. And part of practice is to discover, well, what does it mean to like orient towards the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha? What is a way that uh, honors and respects the tradition and others and me and well-being, compassion, presence, kindness, freedom? And I appreciated uh, Anushka sometimes used this expression like false refuges. You know, society, of course, this is the way that it's got, that we're creating it, is, you know, promising these false refuges. So many of them. I know I have fallen prey to probably all of them. Just, you know, have the right amount of money or have the right uh, education or have the right job, have the right partner. I mean, I've thought like, oh, okay, if a person were to have all these things, and certainly they'd be perfectly happy, but like, you just have to 
look at kind of like the celebrity culture, even if you don't know the details, you know there are enough people who are seemingly have everything and are perfectly miserable. And maybe in our own lives we have discovered there was something that we worked really hard to attain or acquire or have in some kind of way, and then only to discover, oh, this didn't make me as happy as I was expecting it to. I worked so hard. I was convinced that as soon as I have whatever it is, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be able to have it all figured out and then could just relax and coast. I was telling Anushka that sometimes I like to say, if this were true and if you had figured this all out, you would not have signed up for seven days of silence here, right? You would be out there coasting and doing whatever it was, right? And so the Buddha recognizes this idea of false refuges. And I appreciate this. For me, it kind of like humanizes it to recognize that thousands, this is a long time, thousands of years ago, there was talk about how we have these, we take take refuge in things, trying to find well-being, peace, whatever it is we're looking for, and then we don't find it. And here's a quote from the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses. This is the Buddha. People threatened by fear go to many refuges, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. As a little side note, we might think like, what would be modern day equivalents? You know, shopping malls, <laughs> internet, uh, surfing the internet, or, you know, I don't know jobs where we're busy all the time or, or something like this. Right? So the Buddha is saying, go to many refuges, mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines. None of these is a secure refuge. None is a supreme refuge. Not by going to such a refuge is one released from dukkha. But when someone goes for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha and sees with insight the Four Noble Truths, that is, dukkha, the arising of dukkha, the ending of dukkha, and the Eightfold Path that leads to the ending of dukkha, this is a secure refuge. This is a supreme refuge. By going to such a refuge, one is released from dukkha. So to be released from dukkha, dukkha again is this word that has this wide range of meanings from just mild irritation to just terrifying, horrifying, absolute worst thing you can imagine. Just, you know, this really wide range. To be released from dukkha is to recognize it, to see it. And to see that it arises and that it passes away and there's causes for dukkha. Of course, we don't want to hear this really. We want to hear, you know, just do something else. 
and you know to separate us from this dukkha, this difficulty. You want to you know, these refuges, whatever it might be. So then, this idea of okay, so dukkha is a I'm sorry, refuge is a orientation or a something that can be protective and can lead to the ending of dukkha, but. What does it mean to take refuge in the Dharma? There's lots of ways we can interpret that, and I'd like to share a little bit of a story that's um, from the suttas. But before I do that, I'd like to give another little quote that the, where the um, Dharma is described, maybe in a little bit different way than sometimes we think about it. And in fact, uh, when Anushka last night uh, did this demonstration of um, gravity, right? Just dropping a piece of paper. It's this recognition. This is the nature of reality. Things fall when they're not held. And in some ways, we can, in my mind, we might think about that when um, we hear this definition of Dharma. Whether there is an arising of a Buddha or no arising of a Buddha, that element still persists, the stableness of the Dharma, the fixed course of the Dharma. A Buddha awakens to this and breaks through to it. And having done so, a Buddha explains it, teaches it, proclaims it, establishes it, discloses it, analyzes it, and elucidates it. I kind of like its idea, just like uh, Anushka was saying, you know, babies kind of like discover, you know, oh, gravity. Newton discovered uh, gravity. And in some ways, like, what, what is the truth of uh, existence? What is the truth of this human experience? And this idea that it's something that's, that we break through to it, discover for ourselves in the same way that maybe that a, the Buddha did. And so there's a way in which taking refuge in the Dharma is the way to allow the things are, the nature of reality, to be a protection and an orientation that is to align with it. I use the language to be in sync with it. Anushka said to be in harmony with it. Because so often we're in contention, kind of fighting. I don't want it to be this way. I want more. I want less. It'll be different in the future. I'm not even sure how it is now, but it's later it'll be better. I'm sure it is. As soon as I... X, Y, and Z. But is there a way that uh, taking refuge in the Dharma is to be in tune with what's actually happening here? And here's a story that comes from the suttas. And, you know, sometimes these stories are... um, in order to be, or just stories in general, in order to be memorable. Sometimes they have extreme elements, you know, to maybe make a point. But sometimes it can also be when we hear these extreme elements, we might be like, that has nothing to do with me, I wouldn't do that. 
But instead, can we hold like, okay, what's being pointed to here? In what way is this like true and relevant for me today? Recognizing, like, honestly, I have no idea if this is a true story, if it's just a pedagogical tool. But how can we make it relevant for us? Instead of saying, okay, well, that was thousands of years ago, and that was so different, really doesn't have anything to do with me. And so that's part of what I like to do with this story, is I'll tell an element of it, and then maybe share and unpack some of uh, some ways we might hold it or think about it and how it might impact us and impact the ways that we might align with the Dharma. So the story begins that the Buddha was traveling with a large group of monastics, which was common. Says he would often do this. He'd be traveling through uh, in northern India at this time. And he came to the town to Lakotita, and there were many people who went to hear him talk. He had this uh, good reputation, and so it's like, oh, you know, somebody's uh, here, and this is what you know the town people would do, and the religious people would do is to go hear like the philosophers or the religious people of the time come into town. And one person that went to go hear him was Retapala. And Ratapala was from a very wealthy family and a very well-known family of this town. So, and he was a young man. And in my mind, I'm thinking like like some celebrities we have now, right? If we would think that would go there. In my mind, I thought of like, oh, maybe it's like Elon Musk. If he were to go hear somebody talk, like people would notice who he went to. Like, here's somebody who has seemingly could have everything, right? So, so the, he goes to hear the Buddha speak, and then Ratapala is so inspired. I'm going to ordain. I'm going to go follow the Buddha. I'm going to devote my life to this practice. So he goes to the Buddha and says, I'd like to ordain, I'd like to be a monastic. And the Buddha says to him, have, do you have your parents' permission? This is true, right? For young people, they need to have their parents' permission. I don't know exactly how old he was at this time. And it makes sense, right? You know, the Buddha doesn't want to, like, break up families. He doesn't want people to, like, run away from families from difficulties, you know, just to get away from parents or, you know, something like this. Do you have your parents' permission? No. And then Retapala says, well, I'm going to go back and I'll get their permission and then I'm going to come back and ordain. So he goes to his parents and says, I'm going to ordain, shave my head, abandon all my beginning, you know, belongings and leave, you know, no longer going to live with you. And instead, I'm going to follow this person who just came to town. You can imagine what his family's response they were not happy about this. And they gave him a few reasons. No, 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 you shouldn't ordain. And one of them, they said to him, you have been raised in comfort, brought up in comfort. You know nothing of dukkha. So this recognition, you know, you've had a cushy life. What do you think you're going to do? It's not going to be cushy anymore. And 
maybe you wouldn't be able to even handle it. Are you, you don't want to do that. In some ways, I'm also thinking that, you know, his parents don't, they're don't really have, uh, um, confidence in him, kind of like undermining him. Like, oh, pff, you wouldn't be able to hack it. It's kind of how I'm thinking maybe his parents are, you know, trying to dissuade him. But um, his parents also say to him, well, you can be happy pursuing sensual pleasures. We can provide everything for you. Just stay here. What What do you want here? We'll provide it for you, right? If you're fabulously wealthy and influential in the town, you could make it happen. So don't go, don't leave. What, what, what will make you stay? Anything you want. Retopolo isn't hearing it, and he still says, and then this parent says, but you are our only child, and you are dear and beloved to us. And when you die, we will lose you against our wisdom. So how can we allow you to go forth while you're still alive? Like, we never want you to leave. And you might die, that would be bad enough, but we don't want you to leave willingly. So his parents, you know, just didn't want to be without him, right? And I can understand this, right? If you only have one child, you don't want them to go far away or to to ordain means that the, the parents didn't know when they would see him again. Retapala is not convinced. And in my mind, this condensed conversation is going on and on and on because Ratapala decides the only thing that is possible to follow something that, you know, spoke in his heart or in his mind. We don't know exactly what it was, but there was something inside him that recognized, oh, there's more peace and freedom by following the Buddha. And so he felt like he had to do something extreme. So he went on a hunger strike and said... I'm not going to eat again until you let me ordain. And he lay down on the floor and was like, I'm not moving, I'm not eating, This is. I guess I'm going to die. And so then the parents went to Ratapala's friends. Can you talk to him? You know, can you know, uh, get some sense into him? And his friends couldn't convince him either. And so the friends go to the parents and they say to the parents, you will still be able to see him after he ordains. So just pointing out, look, if he stays here and dies, you'll never see him again. But if he becomes a monastic, then you'll be able to at least see him. He'll still be alive. And the friends also say, and he might not enjoy being a monastic. He might return. And so his friends are saying, maybe Retapala just has this romantic idea of what it means to be a monastic. Some of you may know that the monastics, many of them do not eat after the noon meal. Many of them just have one meal a day. They have four possessions. I think it's four. Bowl, robe, medicines, and something else that's very important that I can't remember right now. So it's, you know, very different than the life he was used to. So the parents uh, acquiesce. 
Zaratapola goes back to the Buddha and says, My parents now give me permission. He ordains. And shortly thereafter becomes awakened, becomes an awakened person. Something, you know, with his practice, we don't, I don't know how long, maybe I shouldn't say shortly. The suttas don't say exactly when. But now I'd like to tell another story about Ratapola after what happens now that he's a monastic. Here's somebody who really had some difficulty becoming a monastic, but then what happens is that he's meditating in a park. And the king is goes to the park. This is we see this a number of times in the uh, suttas. I, I'm thinking like you know we're using the word park, but maybe it's beautiful gardens or something like this. So the king says Ratapala, and I'm we the king has heard the story of Ratapala. Elon Musk, in my mind, right? Uh, you know, ordaining and uh, going off uh, to being a monastic. And maybe nobody ever heard what happened to him while he was a monastic. So the king says, it's a little bit curious. And he goes up to Ratapala and offers um, a rug for Ratapala to sit on. This is like a sign of respect for the monastic, right? For the king to make an offering. It's not uncommon at that time for the uh, royalty to um, pay respects to the Sangha. Ritapala says to the king, oh, there's no need, great king. I am sitting on my own mat. And then the king says to him, what did you know or see or hear that made you ordain? You can imagine this is a question a lot of people want to know. What was it that happened when he saw the Buddha that really you know, wanted him to go forth? And Ratapala said, Great King, the Blessed One, the Buddha, who knows and sees, the Perfected One, the Fully Awakened Buddha, taught four summaries of the Dharma. Taught four summaries of the Dharma. And after knowing and seeing and hearing these, I went forth and ordained. Of course, you can imagine what the king asks. Summaries. <laughs> so he asks the the king asks, "Well, what are you know? What are these summaries?" And I can imagine the king, busy person, likes the idea of summaries, right? Something succinct, easy, simple doesn't seem to require a lot of uh, study or practice. And these summaries, maybe um, they'll be something worthwhile. or And Retapala, he's actually really skilled in how he speaks to the king. And he speaks to the king giving examples of these summaries that are in a way that the king can relate to. So Retapala is not talking about these fantastic meditative attainments or supernormal powers or anything like this. Instead, Ratapala talks about the dukkha that is present even when you have enormous amounts of comforts. 
And today, of course, right, we might consider the amount of comforts that we have relative to ancient India. But all of us, we might also consider, you know, we have dukkha in our life, even though we also have comforts. And Ratapala also, in his examples, which I'll outline in just a moment here, but when he's talking to the Buddha, I'm sorry, to the king, he's also pointing to this lack of controllability. Like we can't like make things turn out the way that we want. We can't make them be just right in the way that we want them to be. So Ratapala talks to the king also in a way of asking questions, kind of like, drawing out the king rather than just lecturing him. So here's the first summary of the Dharma. The world is unstable and swept away. The world is unstable and swept away. And the king asks for clarification. What does this mean? Aratapala says, What do you think, great king, when you were 20 or 25 years of age? Were you proficient at riding elephants, horses, and chariots, and at archery? Were you strong and capable? I was. Sometimes it seems as if I had superpowers then, and I don't see anyone who have could, could have equaled me in strength. So, What do you think, great king? These days, are you just as strong and capable? No, for now I am old, elderly, and senior. Sometimes I intend to step in one place, but my foot goes somewhere else. And then Ratapala says, well, this is what the Buddha was referring to when he said the world is unstable and swept away. Aging is unavoidable. Change is unavoidable. This is the nature of reality. It's the nature of being a human. Our capacities diminish as we age. And there can be a lot of dukkha when we are not aligned with the truth of this. And there's a billion-dollar industries trying to convince us, oh, no, you don't actually have to age. You can do all these things. You can be just as strong or as beautiful or whatever you'd like to be. But the truth is that our physical capabilities, our memory, our minds, you know, they change. And it's not uncommon to have a comparing mind I used to be able to do this. When will I be able to do that again? So part of maybe taking refuge in the Dharma is to align with the truth of change happens, aging happens. Rather than pretending it's not happening or getting mad at it or insisting that it shouldn't happen to me, to us, can we take care of ourselves as best we can? Can we honor and respect what it's like to be in the human bodies that we are in? 
without insisting that they be otherwise. Without just thinking like, oh, I used to be able to do this. All of us are aging. Maybe some of you haven't noticed, but um, <laughs> of course. So that's the first summary of the Dharma. The world is unstable and swept away. And Ratapala talks about this change or in the terms of aging. And this is something, of course, the king can recognize. Somebody maybe not oriented towards practice or has a, any interest in maybe philosophy, but, you know, something that all of us can recognize. The second summary of the Dharma. The world has no shelter and no savior. And the king says to Ratapala, what do you mean? In this royal court, you can find divisions of elephants, cavalry, chariots, and infantry. Like this would have been like the military at the time, I guess. And they will serve to defend us from any threats. And yet you said the world has no shelter and no savior. How should I understand the meaning of this statement? And Ratapala replies, well, what do you think, great king? Do you have any chronic ailments? Yes. Sometimes my friends and colleagues, relatives and family members surround me thinking, the king is going to die. What do you think, great king? Can you get your friends and colleagues, relatives and family members to help? Please, dear friends, colleagues, relatives and families, here, take some of my pain so that I might feel less pain. Or must you feel that pain alone? The king says, I can't get my friends to share my pain. I must feel it alone. So the king has surrounded himself with these tools of warfare, thinking that this will be a protection. But what do we use to protect ourselves? From whatever it is that we think that is going you know, to be with fear or that we're afraid of or that might threaten us. We might think that, I know certainly <laughs> I did a lot of this, and I didn't even notice how much I did this until I had a meditation practice. Well, we, was I a planner? Like my mind was always planning, planning, planning. And I had this idea like, okay, as long as I just, you know, am prepared for everything, then I'll be okay. But in order to prepare, I had to plan and, you know, anticipate every particular scenario. And this, you know, it just meant like uh, carrying in a purse or a backpack or if I was traveling a suitcase or a briefcase or, you know, whatever it was, like just so much stuff, like, well, I might need this, I might need that, I mean, this other thing, right? Just literally just carrying baggage around, thinking that this would protect me. Or I'd be planning, okay, well, if I do this, and then I don't do that, uh, then this can happen, and then that will happen, I don't know. Maybe some of you have done some of this, too. We 
might think that, um, and I've done plenty of this too, right? I spent years of my life trained to be a research scientist and somehow thinking that, okay, if I could just understand everything and if I could just think and figure it out, then that would protect me. Just figuring things out. As long as I really understood them, then they couldn't harm me. Turns out like there's endless things to figure out, right? Can't figure them all out. Have you tried? Sometimes we find ourselves in the meditation practice, like trying to like, okay, well, as soon as I get this figured out, and then it'll be fine. But, you know, has it worked? (laughs) I'll just say for me, it hasn't worked. It turns out, yeah, it doesn't work. Sometimes it's comfortable to understand things. It makes brings some ease, but it's not a protection against, you know, dukkha. Or in this particular example, the the king is, you know, has a chronic ailment. So we might think that eating the right foods and exercising and taking all the right supplements or, you know, whatever it is will protect us from physical pain or even, you know, some ailments, there's no guarantees. We know this too. And so there's a way in which kind of like aligning with, there's a part of us that actually knows this is true. Aligning aligning with this reality. Stop fighting with it. Stop kind of secretly wishing we could pretend it's not true, pushing it away, turning away from it. But instead, there can be a certain, I would even say, there's a, there's a certain like delight or this gladness that can arise when we finally turn towards to what we've been really hoping wasn't true and avoiding. And just like, yeah, okay, it's like this right now. And to just be with it as best we can. And I also want to honor and respect that so many of us have like trauma backgrounds and maybe it's not wise to just like jump right in and be with whatever the most difficult thing is. But is there a way that we can stop trying to push away or deny the things that aren't the way that we want them to be and and that there isn't a place that can be this savior as soon as we have it figured out or as soon as we have it we touch into it there will be a protection from dukkha our lives have dukkha and they will continue to have dukkha and for me I'll say what has been like so deeply meaningful is that it's our relationship to the dukkha that can be shifted. So terrible things can happen in our lives, painful things, but there's a way in which the problemness out of them can drain out. It's like, yes, this is painful, this is difficult, this is not what I want. 
but it doesn't have to be like the biggest problem. It's just what is. Calling it a problem is extra. It's something that we're adding on top of it. So is there a way that we can align with the reality of the way things are? The Dharma. The third summary of the Dharma the Buddha said is the world has no owner you must leave it all behind and pass on and the king asks for clarification when he says to Retapala in this royal court you can find abundant gold coin and bullion and stored in dungeons and towers. And yet you said the world has no owner. You must leave it all behind and pass on. How should I understand the meaning of this statement? Retapala responds, what do you think, great king? These days you amuse yourself supplied and provided with the five kinds of sensual stimulation. Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching and smelling. But is there any way to ensure that in the next life you will continue to amuse yourself in the same way, or will others make use of this property and while you pass on? And the king replies, there's no way to ensure that I will continue to amuse myself in the same way. Others will take over this property while I pass on. Metapala says, well, this is what the Buddha was referring to when he said the world has no owner. You must leave it all behind and pass on. Yeah, it's it's quite astounding. I even see this for myself. Sometimes like this sense of like acquisitiveness, like, okay, if just have enough, whether it's actual option, uh, objects or experiences or attainments or, you know, whatever it is. We kind of think, okay, well, this will be a protector. This will be, can be a refuge. Whatever it is, I need more. <laughs> right? This is pretty common, right? And we definitely have a society that's really sending this message more and more and more. And here we'll make it really easy for you to get more. Just push tap here or, you know, something like this and you get more. Yeah, so this, it turns out that if we really think about it, that this whole idea of like ownership of whatever it is, we might even think, consider it as a convenient social convention that we all agree on. For example, where you're sitting in this hall, Kind of have your space. In a couple of days, right? It's not going to be your space. Last week, it wasn't your space. It's just something that, you know, we all are agreeing right now that this is yours and I'm sitting here, except when the practice leaders are sitting here or 
and things often this idea of ownership kind of implies that we can control them like this is mine and i can control it or it can support me in some kind of way but right these things we don't really control them sometimes they end up controlling us taking care of objects and maintaining them and making sure they have batteries or are charged up or <laughs> maintained and so many things. We have to put them away or dust them or if they're objects. But even if we have this uh, attainment of education or, you know, to make sure, well, make sure people know that we're educated or that we are using our education or that, I don't know, things that we often are owning, we have this sense of ownership is there's a strong sense of me and mine. They go together. So whenever there's a strong sense of me, there's a strong sense of not me, us and them, me and you, separation. And when there's this real sense of me versus you, us versus them, that's dukkha. A sense of isolation and separation, and it's all up to me. I have to solve it and figure it out and make it all better and fix this and take care of that, and it's exhausting. So not only can this sense of ownership not protect us, but the sense of ownership also kind of like highlights of this mine, not yours. And that itself is a sense of dukkha. This gets more and more subtle. The more the mind quiets down, we see this, how this gets played out in so many different ways, obvious ways and really quiet, subtle ways too. The third summary of the Dharma, the world has no owner. We must leave it all behind and pass on. The fourth summary of the Dharma, the world is wanting, insatiable, the slave of craving. The king asks for clarification. How should I understand the meaning of this statement? Ratapala responds, What do you think, great king? Do you dwell in the prosperous land of, the, of Kuru? Yes. What do you think, great king? Suppose a trustworthy and reliable person were to come from the east. They would approach you and say, Please, sir, you should know this. I come from the east, and there I saw a large country that is successful and prosperous and full of people. They have many divisions of elephants, cavalry, chariots, and infantry, and there's plenty of money and grain, and with your current forces, you could conquer it. Go conquer it, great king. And Ratapala asks, what would you do? And the king says, I would go and conquer it. And then the Ratapala says, well, what do you think, great king? Suppose a trustworthy and reliable person were to come from the west. And 
they would approach you and say, there is this there is this other country that is successful and prosperous and full of people, and they have this divisions, and there's plenty of money and grain, and you could conquer it. Go conquer it. What would you do? I would go conquer it. Suppose a person came from the north. Let's talk about this country, and what would you do? I would go conquer that. Suppose there was this person from the south. What would you do? I would conquer that, too. So pointing out, uh, like, there's this doesn't matter where there's always this need of like this idea of more and so Ratapala says well this is what the Buddha was referring to when he said the world is wanting insatiable the slave of craving there's this some of this way in which it's always this dissatisfaction like wanting more some ways we might even say this is dukkha. Just, it's not quite right. This dukkha. Or this, the really obvious sense of, you know, I need more. Or this, maybe Ratapala gave this example to the king because he's a king. And maybe that's what kings do. They go conquer territories. So Ratapala was giving an example that the king could relate to. But what does it mean for each of us? Is there something that we think that you know makes sense for our lives? That um, that we have this sense of this pushing us around. That we don't have this freedom or ease with it. I'm not saying that we don't pursue things. I'm not saying that we don't um, do things in the world. What Ratapala is pushing or is pointing to and the Buddha is pointing to is when we are getting pushed around by them, when we feel like we don't really have a choice about it. We feel compelled. What a difference it would be if we could think like, you know, this feels wise. This feels like the compassionate thing to do. This feels like, you know, what caring for myself, caring for others, caring for the world is what is to what I could do. Instead of just hearing, oh, there's a country over there, okay, I'll go get it. So in these four summaries of the Dharma and the way that Ratapala explained these kind of summaries, kind of like expanded what the, I guess what the Buddha said, is that none of the things that the king in this story believes is going to be sources of lasting happiness actually aren't sources of lasting happiness. But aligning with the reality of things, how they really are, can be a source of lasting happiness, it turns out. To kind of like put down the, as best we can. It's not, right, I'm not saying that this is easy, and I'm not saying it's fast, that we can learn how to do this quick, but I did kind of like put down this quiet, or maybe not so quiet, insistence that things be different, or be otherwise, or how we want them, and, and all the ways we have these preferences Instead, can we, as best we can, fold it into our practice, 
it's like this right now. It's like this right now. Whatever that this is. And part of the practice that Anushka and I are teaching is to first we're sorry, like with the breath. Okay, the breath is like this right now. The body is like this right now. And we'll continue in the ensuing days. We'll expand it and expand it to more and more things. We'll be including emotions and thoughts. And so part of meditation practice is to just increase our capacity to be with whatever the this is. So the Buddha's teachings, the the Dharma, we might say, and these four summaries of the Dharma are, are more than just like instructions of how to live in the world. They're, but they're more than just, you know, everyday life, but it's also pointing to what's possible as humans. Freedom. Peace. joy and happiness. And this way of taking refuge in the Dharma of maybe it's like, you know, orienting as best we can towards the nature of reality. This in this way the kind of like turning the rudder towards freedom greater and greater freedom and recognizing that we don't have to fight and to try to make things different all the time. And to be sure, I am not saying that we should tolerate oppression and injustices, but is there a way that we can just say, yes, it's like this right now? And to be um, motivated by, fueled by wisdom and compassion and care when we go out into the world to work with these things, with the injustices, oppression, whatever it might be. Because this is, this whole human experience, it's not so easy. And it's a process to like reorient towards the nature of reality Chances are many of us have been trying to turn away, wishing that things were different. This is quite a learning process to turn towards, yeah, it's like this right now. It takes kindness and compassion for ourselves. It takes kindness and compassion for others to recognize that they're having difficulties. Of course they are. And the Buddha says, if it weren't possible to end dukkha, I wouldn't teach about the ending of dukkha. There wouldn't be the Dharma. There wouldn't be these teachings for the ending of dukkha. And something for me that is like really meaningful for me is this idea that it's not like there's this big uh, shazam at the end where all the dukkha is suddenly gone. But it's it's a path of practice, right? And so there's like 
less and less and less dukkha as our life progresses in our path on this practice. Certainly this has been the truth for me, and I see this in others too, that with practice that our life starts to simplify in certain ways or ease, maybe not in the time frame we want or the way that we expect, but it's, you know, there's less and less dukkha becomes available. So practicing in this way and aligning with the Dharma, taking refuge in the Dharma as a way for the diminishment and ending of dukkha. So thank you for your attention. Maybe we'll just sit for a minute or so. You don't have to change your posture if you don't want to. Just for a minute we'll sit. Thank you.